We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we record this podcast today, the Arakwal people of the Bunjalong Nation, and pay our respects to Elders past and present. Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Claire. Thank you so much for joining us on Beyond the Bump today. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. So I'm Claire. I'm a midwife and a mother of three. I work at a hospital permanent part-time here and I am creator of The Womb Rooms, which is a postnatal service offering support for lactation and postnatal um, women, which is coming soon. That's nine kids between us. Does that make us professional or? 100%. (laughs) (laughs) She's a professional. I'm not quite sure about us. But you might have heard me talk about Claire before on the podcast as my guardian angel because she was my beautiful midwife when I had Goldie and when I had Pearl. So when she told me she was starting up this educational platform called Womb Rooms, talking all about, you know, giving parents information about when they take their bub home and so much more. I thought we need to get her on the podcast because you are such a wealth of knowledge. And obviously all my interactions with you have been so amazing. So I can't wait to share that with all of our beautiful listeners. Now, we've got a whole heap of questions that have been sent in, so we're going to get straight into it, if you don't mind. The first one is, okay, you have just had your baby. What can you expect over the next few days commonly? That's a really simple question. (laughs) (laughs) We're not asking much. That's a loaded question. So what can you expect in the first few days? You can expect to breastfeed or feed your baby, depending on the approach. But if you are breastfeeding, you can expect to be spending a lot of time doing that or settling your baby. Babies generally will have a nice settled period for the first 24 hours and then be quite unsettled for the next 24, 48 hours. So um, be prepared for that. It's super normal. Can we talk to that for a second? Because I feel like when you first have your baby, I think they call it the hibernation sleep. Is that right? They're exhausted after they've been through labor. I assume that's why they do it. And that first night you are convinced that you have been sent (laughs) this absolute unicorn baby, but you are so in love that you just lie there and stare at them sleeping. And that's what my first two were like. And then the second night rolls around and you think, why the hell did I not sleep last night? Because all of a sudden this unicorn baby has turned into the actual devil. Pearl actually did it the other way around. Her first night was an absolute shocker because she had a fair bit of mucusy sounding fluidy lungs. And then her second night, she was great. But I do like to say to all first time parents, make the most of that first night and sleep if you can. 
A hundred percent. I think hormones are beautiful things. So there's so much adrenaline when you have have your baby initially and that's going through you, it's going through your baby. So babies are really alert and responsive at birth and they have this beautiful breastfeed and they attach and they're looking up at you and they're connecting and they do that for a couple of hours and then they fall into this deep hibernation sleep. And I think it's just mother nature working its magic really because it gives everyone a chance to recoup and kind of process what's just happened. And then they wake up to the world a little bit. So, yeah, that's when sometimes, you know, mothers talk about what's what the hell's happening here. My baby was perfect and now my baby's not. It's only day two and my baby's already broken. <laughs> yeah, so that is one thing to expect in that first 24 hours. But that's a big question because I feel like there's so much to cover and I think obviously as we go through more specific questions we'll answer those. And when you're sitting in the hospital, Like I know that we're trying to get the baby on the boo before you're choosing to breastfeed. How long does it take for our milk to actually come through? So that depends on, I guess, your mode of care with your birth. So if you're in a private hospital, you tend to have a longer stay. If you're in the public system, you might go home after 24 hours. If you're in group practice, you may obviously go home after four hours. If you have a home birth, you're at home. So it just depends in terms of coming in when you're at hospital, but typically your milk will come in between days three and five. So up until that point, you're producing colostrum, which is really rich in nutrients and all the baby needs to coat the little guts and give them good microbiome and all that sort of thing. But day three to five, there are situations in which that can be delayed for some women. But most of the time, it's between day three and five if all's good. And colostrum is also known as liquid gold. You will find midwives saying, don't you dare let that drop or go down the sink or go anywhere. Keep every single bit of it. Pearl vomited her whole, I swear, her whole colostrum intake up. So I was like, oh, my God, I could see it all over her onesie. I'm like, do I scoop it back up and try and get it back in? (laughs) We get very precious about colostrum. We do. We love it. And we, you know, we know women work so hard to get it. So we're devastated when they, you know, when we spill it or drop it or leak it out at all. And so why is there such a varied amount of time that people stay in hospital? Like what is optimum? Obviously I'm saying after a straightforward birth. Yeah. So I guess optimum is what you feel comfortable with in my opinion. So I think, you know, usually you know that prior to your birth because you've chosen your model of care and you you know what to expect in terms of your length of stay in the hospital. So I think, you know, you don't go to group practice if you're not comfortable going home after four hours. And obviously sometimes private and public isn't a choice, but in general, a private hospital will have you stay four or five nights and a public hospital probably one or two nights maximum, depending on, you know, if you've had a cesarean or a vaginal birth. So yeah, that's I think there's no optimum. It's some people love the fact that they get to stay and they get all this advice and they get to ring a buzzer and have someone there at the drop of a hat. And some women find it really overwhelming because it's too much information and they just prefer to be in their own environment and tuning into their instincts. So I think it's just a personality thing Mm. too. Yeah, Nick and I called our hospital stay because we stayed for about four nights. We were looking forward to it the whole pregnancy as our holiday. And I was like, how sick is parenting that your stay in hospital after you've just pushed a freaking baby out is your holiday. <laughs> it's the only thing you've got to look forward to. <laughs> but I know that some other women are like, I can't wait to get back to my bed. But I was like, getting back to my bed means that there's yeah. two other children running around. So I want to stay right here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's that's, I mean, I work in a private hospital, so the feedback I get, women love it. 
but at the same time, it's not a choice for everyone. And generally speaking, if you've chosen a group practice model or a um, standard care, you do get home visits. So you get someone to come out and care for you in your home. Is And so that is the optimal. And what are your best words of advice for taking your bub home? A lot of people say that it feels so weird, especially as a first-time mum, because you're just allowed to leave the hospital with a human to take care of for the rest of your life. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, I'm going <laughs> to go with there's just I think reassurance because I think your biggest fear is that you can't do it and that something's going to go wrong and there's no one to call. There's always someone to call, so know that. I think that's so important, whether you need lactation support, whether you need a GP because you think your baby's got a temperature or an emergency centre or whatever, psychologist. There's just always someone to call, so reach out. You're never alone. I think that's one really important tip that mums should remember. The other thing that I think is a big thing for new mums is just this too shall pass. I think just knowing that and saying that to yourself because so often you find yourself getting attached to behaviours or habits of your baby, good and bad, might I say. Sometimes it might be a good habit and you're like, yay, my baby's sleeping through the night <laughs> at, you know, two weeks of age and you think that's going to last. And and before you know it, they've changed it up. But on the not so great side, sometimes you find yourself in a hellish situation. You're sitting there, you can't have a shower, you can't get yourself food, you're finding yourself helpless, you're tied to a couch breastfeeding and you think this is never going to end. And it's just, it can be a dark place for a lot of mums. So just know this too shall pass everything's a phase with babies and, um, you know, before you know it, they'll change it up and it'll be different. Great advice. And I think that's the best thing about when you go to consecutive babies is you know that. I remember there was moments after I had Poppy that I just thought you just don't know when anything's going to end and you go, oh, like I knew that sleep would be hard but is this my life for the next 18 years? And there's parts of it that are and you get used to that and then there's parts of it that, yeah, as you say, in a week, change and Mm. when I've had friends have babies and they're in that really newborn stage and they're like oh my gosh my bub slept for like eight hours straight last night and you've just got to bite your tongue (laughs) and not be that annoying person that goes just you wait (laughs) because you're like yeah I know exactly but also you're like please lower your expectations (laughs) this is not reality yeah and it is that we are speaking a lot to first-time mums in that regard I suppose because the second time or third time or fifth time around you do know those things but the first time you don't and that's what makes a first a first, you know, and, yeah. and that's what makes you a first-time mum. And I also think when you're a first-time mum, whatever positive thing that comes out, like your baby does sleep or you've wrapped the baby nicely or they haven't shut outside their nappy, you kind of instantly go, I am killing it. And as soon as something goes the opposite way, you're instantly like, I've fucked this up, I, I'm not doing a good enough job, what's going on. And just know that it will always, like you will have the good times and you will have the bad times. There will be the And it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Like you can't predict when they want to shit through all their clothes in the car seat when you've just got dressed yourself. Like you just don't know when these things are going to happen. And I think if you take light of the fact that it is all out of your control, it sort of makes the first time mothering seem less intense. Yeah. And less blame. Yeah. 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 I think just to add to that, and I think it sounds a little bit on the negative side when I say this, but lowering your expectations or or setting realistic expectations is so important as a new mum because we put so much pressure on ourselves to do certain things. And I think 
you just need to expect that all you need to do is get your baby fed. They don't even need to be dressed if you're at home. <laughs> they need to be fed. You need to be fed and you need to sleep. Anything else is a bonus. That's great. So if you get out and have a coffee with a friend or you get a walk that day, that's great. But don't overcommit yourself in those early days. Just go back to absolute basics. I think that would be a really good thing to have like as a sticky note next to your bed or where you breastfeed. Like personally now, mum of three, I have no expectations on life. I have very low standards of life. but Low standard of living. If you had that as a first time mum, just, you know, when you're breastfeeding in the middle of the night or you're feeding, you're doing whatever, just to know that that's your three main focuses that sort of takes the pressure off going, okay, that is my main focus here for now for the next few weeks, months, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I think we try too hard to still be ourselves with a newborn and we're not. We're transitioning into a whole new person and we need to take the time to process that. And I think every bub is different and trial and error can be key. I remember when Poppy was really little, I had this group conversation with all these other mums that were first-time mums. And I remember one of the mums wrote in in the morning and said, oh my goodness, Charlie slept for 10 hours last night. And we all thought, oh my gosh, what did you do? Tell us what you did. So we all followed what she did to the (laughs) minute. Like it was like the bath at exactly this temperature and using this washcloth and leave them in for this amount of minutes and swaddle them at this time. We had the worst night (laughs) of Poppy's life to date at that night. And it just made me realise they're all different. Yes. It probably actually had nothing to do with what she did the night before and yeah. all to do with what he felt like doing that night. And, I mean, the 10 hours sleeps for him didn't last and the crap sleeps for us didn't last either and you just yeah. keep going and trial and error. It's it, it's so true. I think you're spot on. And, and I think all babies, all mums are so different too and they feed off us. So if our energy is or our anxiety is high, theirs is going to be. So if we're trying to do what someone else is doing, not something that comes naturally to us. We're going to be more stressed. So, you know, I think, yeah, doing what feels comfortable to us and what comes naturally to us, our babies are always going to be more in tune and more settled. What do you think should be put in place before going home or things that we can prepare maybe on our maternity leave or while we're waiting for bub to come to make that coming home process easier? Biggest thing is food prep. For me, I think nutritious, wholesome food in your freezer so you don't have to think about it. And I know that's oversaid because everybody says it, but it's just it's just it's fact. True. It's true. You just don't want to cook and you don't want your husband to be cooking because you need him there getting you water and taking the baby and giving the baby a bath and giving you five minutes. So if they're in the kitchen, they're not helping you do other things. So having that food is top. I think having some little stations set up around the house for nappies and it's particularly if you have two stories in your house, that sort of thing. So, and also if you have other kids set up little kits for them Mm. so that they can come with you to the stations, because I remember that being a bit of a struggle, you know, oh, what do I do with them or that anxiety that creeps in when you think, oh, I've got to breastfeed, but I know they need me too. So just having little things set up for them as well. The other thing I think is you've got postnatal brain um, when you have baby and it's an actual it's, thing. It's an actual thing, yes. actual proven research How thing. Long does it, last? it goes to mush. 
much longer than we think. And I don't want to be specific about it. But I think <laughs> because you want everyone to just be able to blame it on that yeah. no matter where you are in the if, process. We're not we're not naming dates. No. If your baby's 25, then you're still okay. You're still good. <laughs> but I think booking appointments that you think you might need. So a lot of mums I see antenatally, there's so much more anxiety and depression around these days. Standard, but also that comes about during pregnancy and postnatal. And a lot of people that I see have psychologists or see people or have in the past and have a predisposition, not just psychology, but a lot of if you have any other medical issues that you see a specialist for or whatever, I always say plant the seed in your head, plan ahead. We know this is a more stressful time for mums. We know that that it's more likely to increase, not disappear. So have some appointments. When you need a psychologist, they're pretty hard to get into. Yeah. So book them. Have one in your pregnancy just to check in. If you don't need it, cancel it. That's right. fine. It's much easier to cancel an appointment than it is to make one. A hundred percent. And postnatally, I just think you never know how you're going to cope. And if you have that check-in, if you know your predisposition to something, then you can cancel it if you don't need it. You can go to it if you do. So I think some appointments, even with your GP or whoever you know you're going to need to check in at a week or or whatever. So book those early because you, when you get home, it's the last thing you want to think about. If someone knows they're having a cesarean, would there be anything extra or different that you would put in place to make that coming home a bit easier? I think just physically things are a little bit harder with the cesarean. Obviously you can't pick up other children, you can't carry them around, you can't drive. So picking up and dropping off of other kids or getting you groceries or things like that. So just organising in advance people to do that for you or online shopping. That's another one that you can add to the list. And the other point to that one is just your bulk items, like your your really annoying things like when you're stopping to get fuel that becomes so annoying. So your toilet papers, your paper towels, your nappies, get them all delivered because when you're carrying a baby and you've got a toddler and you've got your trolley, it's all too much with your groceries. So buy all that online. I think groceries is actually one of those practical tasks that's something that I encourage people to outsource when they have their bub. Mm. It's actually something because you can send someone a list, you can transfer them the money, they know exactly what they have to do and it's quite an easy task for someone else to do when they're in, you know, a non-postnatal state of mind. So like that daycare drop-off, really practical things like that that are actually so exhausting and hard to do but really easy for a quote-unquote normal person to do (laughs) are really good things to outsource because people often want to help and yeah, they just don't know how. And then they're out of your space, but they're actually being really helpful and leaving more time for you to do the things that matter. And yeah. Also, I've been thinking about this since we were talking about food, but when you do do a food, like if it's a train or people are offering to cook meals, tell them what you want, tell them what you'll eat. Even if you've got kids, say my kids would love this and so they've got food because I, with one of my children, was like, I'm going to do this 40-day plan of eating really, really well. And I gagged. I was like, (laughs) I can't eat this stuff. Like this is too much for me. So honestly, half the time I needed a burger or I just needed carbs or I needed something. And I wish that if I had have like been asked or if I had have used my voice and said, we love 
you're going to kill me. Lasagna. <laughs> Don't and- worry, you'll get lasagnas without asking for it. You're talking to the right yeah, person. Yeah, it's yeah. my specialty. No, I think that's so true, Dade. Yeah. And also just, I mean, this is becoming really high maintenance, but having them compartmentalized in smaller compartments so that you can pull it out for lunch or whatever, because you're not always feeding the family, but you're always yeah. home and need lunch. And if, yeah. you know, lunch and morning out. tea and afternoon tea <laughs> yeah, and after snacks. afternoon tea. Yeah. <laughs> What should be the first thing you do when you walk through the door? That is such a surreal moment where you're like, okay, there's a baby in the house now. What do I do? Yeah. So you should put a nappy on your baby. You should put a nappy on yourself (laughs) and you should walk straight to your bedroom Mm. and hop into bed and have some skin to skin. That's all you need to do and get someone to make you a toastie and a cup of tea. (sighs) Just lie there, skin to skin, bond with your baby, get to know each other. There's nothing else you need to do. Beautiful. It's chats like this that make me glad that for your sake that Harry's had a vasectomy because I always <laughs> I know. know after chats thinking, like this, Jade goes, I could do oh, this. I kind of want to do, do it again and then because I get a toasty in bed. I know, and I do. I always listen to this sound advice and I go, if I have all this knowledge now and all these things around me, I could actually possibly potentially have a fourth child. No, Jade, we are comfortable. <laughs> I could do it better. <laughs> we are doing different things in life. We are happy with the three. We are very happy for everyone else that tells and shares their stories. So move. <laughs> Moving on. And we are moving on. We're moving on to sleep. Oh, yeah, this was this is a big one. What should we expect <laughs> in terms of sleep in a newborn? Seriously. Seriously, don't have an expectation. So I thought you were gonna say don't have a newborn. <laughs> <laughs> no, do have a newborn. Definitely have a newborn. So a newborn's gonna sleep somewhere between 16 and 18 hours in a 24-hour period. And that's a real generalization. There's a there's a spectrum of everything and there's a spectrum of baby sleep. So some newborns require less, but most will have that amount of sleep. But there is, it's irregular. There's no pattern to it. So in terms of what to expect, you need to go with the flow with your baby. They'll sleep probably no more than four hours at a time. And in those first couple of weeks, not really be awake for longer than an hour, an hour and a half at a time. So if you just feed them when they're awake, have a little bit of connection and communication with them for 10 or 15 minutes, wear them out, give them another side of the breast or another bit of food, swaddle them up and just give them some cues back to sleep and they'll hopefully sleep for another four hours. Is it nice to have a semi-routine? Like I know you're saying they have different sleep hours, but in terms of the process of being a first-time mum, would it be good when they wake up to have that notion of no matter what, I'll change the nappy, I'll feed the baby and burp them. Like should we have some sort of structure around that or is it still at this time let's just go with the flow? Yeah. I think in the if we're talking the first few weeks, I think it's definitely no structure at all. Okay. I think you can give always give your babies cues. So in terms of when you do feed a baby, unwrap your baby, get them awake and alert so that they know, okay, it's activity time. I'm going to do something, you know, be awake, say hello, open my eyes, interact a little bit. And then obviously cues to sleep is a swaddle or a sleep suit or whatever you're using. So cues like that, some people use bathing as cues, you know, in terms of, okay, this is your night time now. So this is what we do at this time of the night. And hopefully they eventually get the message that that's, <laughs> that's going to be your longer sleep for the, you know, the 24 hour period. But no, in those first few weeks, it's literally, I mean, you tend to find the first two weeks, they're not awake for very long anyway. They literally open their eyes, they'll have a guzzle, they'll go back on you. And that's perfectly normal and, and the right thing to do. 
I think a lot of first-time mums stress about fitting in things like tummy time and they're not awake for long, as you say. When should you start making sure you fit that in? And in those first two weeks when they're so tired, is there even time for it? Not really. I mean, you can't, like if there's that 15 minutes where you think, oh, you're changing their nappy and they're looking a little bit active, roll them over. And when we say tummy time, like it can be 30 seconds. I think parents think it might be a good, you know, five minutes that they're making their babies (laughs) squawk. Intense training. Yeah, intense training. But sometimes it's, you know, 30 seconds. But also with tummy time, especially in those early days, you can do it on you. Mm. Lie down and just put them chest to chest on you and that's enough. They'll, They'll arch back and lift their head up and move around and try to find you and see you and that is considered tummy time as well so it doesn't have to be an official regime. I remember when Nicole the physio we chatted to her she's a pediatric physio and she said that about tummy time can just be on you and it seems so obvious but it was just this penny drop moment where I was like game changer. Yeah that is a game changer they're happy there you're happy there they're not suddenly on this cold hard surface it just makes so much sense and takes the pressure off. Yeah Yeah, I think we, you know, we make everything more of a job than it has to be. So much of what we naturally do in those first few weeks are things that our babies need, but we just think, oh no, I need to allocate the time to do it and I need to make it official. But it's actually, if we just relax into it, we tend to do those things without even knowing we're doing them. How can we reassure ourselves when Bubby's sleeping that they're actually okay? (sighs) This one's a tough one because I think It's like telling an anxious person to not be anxious, right? Mm. You can't. You can't make someone who's worried about something not worry about it. But what you can do is put in place certain things to make you feel more comfortable. Mm. So I think if your baby's not already sleeping in your room with you in a bassinet or however you're doing it, do that so that they're close in proximity and you're not getting out of bed every five minutes to check them because that's going to keep you awake all night. I think during the day, if you know, you're out and about in the kitchen doing the washing, have one of your, you know, a little sleep bed somewhere near you so you can observe Bubby and feel more comfortable about it. But I think if that's one of the questions, it's just important to touch on sort of perinatal anxiety and things in that because so much of becoming a new mum and being overwhelmed is just that your mind always going to the worst case scenario Mm. of things. And that alone, that feeling of checking your baby and making sure they're breathing is super normal. I would say 100% of mums have that fear and that's okay. But if it's in combination with other things and you're feeling like you're not, you know, able to enjoy your baby and you're not able to get outside and you're not able to do things, then I think, yeah, it's just important to say like maybe talk to someone with that question because those things, like, like I said, on their own, fine. But I think in combination those things can build up and make us not sleep and lead to other things. So, And why do so many newborns not like sleeping in a bassinet but will sleep on us? Oh, I get asked this question a lot, Soph. Um, Because basically they come out of us and they have a warm environment, they have our smells, our heartbeat, our voices, everything about us, and that's all they know. And newborns don't know they're a separate entity to us yet. So they are literally an extension of us at that age. So I just always reassure parents that that is normal. Again, I'm probably getting annoying saying that because so much no, is normal. No, but that's the reinstate, yeah. reinstate. Yeah. yeah, and so just just go with that. I mean, they're not, they're not going to feel comfortable and safe in a bassinet far away from you in those early days. So 
biggest bit of advice is invest in a good carrier and just make your hands free and get on with it because it's so, um, they are just so much more settled on you. Because I think it can be stressful because we're told as mums, sleep when the baby's sleeping, contact napping's okay, but co-sleeping's not okay. And it can be this thing where, okay, so it's all right for them to nap on me, but I can't fall asleep, (laughs) but I need to sleep when the baby's sleeping, but it's okay if they don't like the bassinet. It can just be this mind fuck of like, but those three things can't all make sense at once. Yeah. 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 No, so true. And it does come back to the carrier every time. You're like, if you've got more than one child or you've just got things to do, I found that when I had Mia, my first, that I would strap her to me. I'd do a bit of the dishes because I felt like it was something I wanted to do. I'd throw on a load of washing and then we would sit back down and that was it. But I could only get that done because she just wanted to be on me. And I I guess you think they're newborns for such a short time. Why are we always trying to make it go faster and get to the next stage of their life? Yeah. And it, it happens and it will happen like that. So just enjoy every tiny moment because mm. they end up being 10 years old and yelling at you. Yeah, but I, th- I think you can say that, but it's also there's also the anxiety around we're told constantly don't co-sleep, don't co-sleep, but then some babies don't want to go in a bassinet at night. So what do you do? Just stay awake all night with them on you? So I think in terms of co-sleeping, everyone says that you can't co-sleep. In actual fact, you can co-sleep, you just have to do it safely. But a lot of people don't feel comfortable doing that either. So I think you have to find a balance between breastfeeding or feeding your baby, having them on you for a certain amount of time to relax everyone to come. Just being close to your baby and having skin to skin with your baby is going to produce this beautiful oxytocin that naturally works to put you to sleep and your baby to sleep. So sometimes it's just a matter of giving them that little bit more time with you in terms of contact and not rushing it and then putting them into a bassinet or a sleep situation near you. Obviously, if that's prolonged and ongoing and you need more help, you know, partners, family, call on people to help settle in those times. But ultimately, I think we're so focused on I need to get back to sleep that we we rush some of the situations and that doesn't help it. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a hard one. And it's a, I I was going to say before you did, take the words out of my mouth a little bit, accepting the season that we're in a little bit makes it, it doesn't make it not there, but it just Mm. makes it a little bit more But what about the bed that you had where it's like, it's like an extension of your bed. So it's like co-sleeping. It's a co-sleeper bassinet. Yeah. Yeah. But I was going to say, even if you have no intention on co-sleeping, I think before you have your bub, you should look into what are the safer Mm. ways to co-sleep because I think it's easy to say, I will never, ever co-sleep. And I think it's something like 70 to 80% of parents find themselves at some point, you know, even if it's just a night here or there doing some form of co-sleeping. And so it's good to know that if you are at a wit's end, even if it's not what you're planning on doing, to know how to do that the safest way possible. Absolutely. It's so true, so Yeah. 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 Because even if you don't plan on it, you will end up doing it at <laughs> yeah. some point. Yeah. So just knowing that, you know, if you're under the influence of any alcohol or drugs or you're really sleepy and you may, you know, not rouse to your baby, they're really important factors in that. And obviously not having any extra blankets or anything around your baby. Is it advised to swaddle all newborns or do some newborns just not like it? 
it's not not necessarily advised, but it's just it's funny when you ask that question. We just do it as midwives. It's just something that's just done, and, and you're I damn think- good at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I think ultimately we know that babies feel more secure. They've come from an environment where they're snuggled really tight and firm. So they do tend to settle. They have a startle reflex that tends to wake them if they don't have their arms tied in and their legs secured a little bit. So it does prevent them waking themselves with that. And um, I think as you move on into the next few weeks and as they get older, they I mean, so many parents report little Houdinis that just get their arms out and they prefer the zip, zip up ones and things like that. So they're all fine too but yeah ultimately babies do like to be feel safe and secure with the swaddle I have never been able to swaddle my baby like the way that midwives swaddle babies in a hospital don't feel bad they've done thousands I know but (laughs) the way it is like it's like origami it's just like a packed (laughs) little thing and when you when they do a poo or something you're like I really don't want to yeah can you just sleep with that yeah or can I go up the bottom or something little present to unpack and when we had pearl they then did this wrap around it with a warm towel and I shit you not Nick was probably about to buy a towel warmer (laughs) while we're in hospital because he's like this is a game changer but it was one of those things where I think she just randomly had a long sleep and he's like it's the warm towel we need a (laughs) towel warmer (laughs) it does help though that was one of my tips for the bathing like using the dryer or something for a warm towel it is nice yeah I want that when should we move to a sleep suit So when your baby shows signs of rolling or is rolling is the best time to do that because they need their hands to push up on. When they are having disrupted sleep and you're finding that they're you know, I think so. If you had this more recently with Pearl, yeah, that the sleep so didn't make any didn't difference. difference. <laughs> no, so sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes they're just having that type of sleep. But often they'll just feel they'll be irritable, and if they're trying to get out of their wrap, their swaddle. So that's probably the best time. And that'll be somewhere between two and four months. Now, moving on to feeding, should we be timing our feeds? Yeah, so definitely not timing feeds. I think babies need to breastfeed on demand. And we know that in terms of supply, we know breasts work on a supply and demand mechanism. So the more we suckle at the breast, the more milk our breasts produce. And that is going to be better for our supply long term. So letting babies have access to the breast whenever they need is best for that sort of thing. It's also going to settle our babies a lot more and keep them relaxed and comforted. And if you're bottle feeding, bottle feed on demand? Bottle feeding's totally different. I think there can be some structure around bottle feeding, but I do find that a lot of parents get caught up in a quota or get caught up in timing with bottle feeding. So I always say, imagine they were on the breast and demand feeding. If they're active, they're showing cues of hunger, give them some more. You you can be flexible within a bottle feed too. So just because they took 100 mils the last feed, they might have slept for five or six hours and they want 120 the Mm. next feed. So just because a quota says a certain amount, it doesn't mean you can't offer a little bit more Mm. if they're acting hungry. So be flexible within a quota system. Yeah. And with breastfeeding, do they need to be fed off both sides? I always offer both sides to a breast uh, at a breastfeed, but As your baby gets older, they may not take both sides at a breastfeed. They may have one. So allow your baby to have to drain a breast and stay on a breast as long as they like and they will come off either asleep 
why do they preference a certain side? Yeah, I mine's my had, lefty. Yeah, it's my left too, and it was always bigger, but I always wanted to know why they liked that. Was it because it had more milk? Like when I started breastfeeding, that was the one they took to. Did I stick to that side more? There's a couple of factors to that. There is one side that always produces more milk oh. than the other. There's a little joke among midwives that, you know, the shitty titty, the one that doesn't <laughs> work as well. But but no, in general, that there's that factor, but there's also... Um, babies tend to preference a side based on how they were in utero too. So sometimes just mechanically their necks are tighter on one side or, you know, they're used to being in a certain position or they turn their head a certain way. So there's something that's more comfortable for them or how the nipple's shaping, Mm. pointing towards that sort of thing. So there's lots of factors, but yeah, it's pretty standard to have one. I also wonder, I'm way more comfortable holding her on that side. Mm. So I don't know if maybe it's more comfortable for her because Mm. I'm more comfortable. Yeah. I think that's And if she's really unsettled, even if I know I've fed on that side the first time, last time, I just sometimes cannot, if she's unsettled, get her onto the right side. So I just go, oh, God, I'll just go to the left. I'll go go to the oversupply. (laughs) The high achiever. (laughs) (laughs) Now, feeding for me was actually incredibly challenging. I had small boobs to start with and I found that every time my milk came in, especially as a first-time mum, they were so hard, like rock melons, and I really struggled to latch Mia on. And I I was trying all the things like the cabbage leaves to sort of soothe the breast. I was trying to massage them. I ended up having to use a bottle to try and give my breast a break because they were so sore. My nipples were cracked. I actually found it incredibly challenging for all. Oh, Billy was okay, the middle child, but yeah, the two other ones was just really, really hard. So is it oversupply at the start? Can it be that or like it was only at the start and then I worked my way through having a good breastfeeding style but every time my milk came in I was in Struggle Street like screaming every time they'd latch for like six weeks. Yeah, yeah, and it can take up to a good six weeks to establish your milk supply. Okay. So I think one of the questions was about night two and why is it so bad as well. So just going back to the night two and how babies cluster feed, typically cluster feed night two or three. And this is mother nature working its magic to help bring in your supply ultimately. So they've had that big hibernation sleep and then they say, hang on a minute, this colostrum stuff's not quite cutting it. I'm going to need a little bit more. My gut's growing. It's the size of, you know, a big marble now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to need, I'm going to need to fill it with some more substance. So where is it? Let's go. I'm going to be on your breasts constantly for the next 24 hours and all of a sudden your breasts are going to feel like they're in your mouth okay (laughs) so yeah and you do you feel like that you can feel like that it can feel really overwhelming um, overwhelming and and because it's so much weight on your chest you actually get that physical sense of being overwhelmed and and you um, can't move like sleeping's really uncomfortable yeah yeah and so that that process is normal it should settle down in a couple of days generally there are then women who have oversupply issues and I guess in terms of you know, telling if your baby is, if you have oversupply with your breasts is that babies will kind of choke and splutter and pull off and fuss at breasts and you'll have milk spraying everywhere and your babies might have explosive green poos and just be generally a bit more unsettled and find it hard to digest their meals. So that is a sign. And then you, you as the mother will be a lot more uncomfortable and full 
more often than not. So you don't necessarily get that because there's nothing quite as satisfying when you're full and then they finish a feed and it, I mean, at the start, it doesn't fully soften, but you get some relief. relief. If you have oversupply, is then there can often be not much of a relief. That's right. There's very little yeah. or it fills again very quickly. And so what can you do to make yourself more comfortable? Because I know it's this catch-22 where you want to get a little bit off to be comfortable, but you don't want to signal to your breasts to make more. Yeah, and I also found that that led to mastitis for me a lot mm. because I had so much of it. I was then having to like get the toothbrush in the shower and just try and massage it out. But sorry, we're jumping around. Oversupply, can that just happen in those first few weeks and then it can all regulate and be fine because I didn't find I had oversupply throughout the whole time. It was only then where I had like five different sprays coming out of a nipple and it was just going Yeah. And then after that it all just went into small boots. Yeah. So when it doesn't settle down is oversupply, I suppose, to differentiate, but it's not jumping because they're actually really, they are quite intermingled mastitis and oversupply things that you can do if you do have oversupply is changing your posture when you're breastfeeding so having your baby's head higher than your breast lying back to slow the pace of your milk is a is a good option or lying down feeding it just Mm -hmm. tends to come out slower for the baby and they tend to be able to regulate the Mm -hmm. pace of the milk flow better another tip is just you know with a first-time mum, you don't always feel a letdown, but you tend to notice the change in your baby's suck and it tends to become more rhythmical and gulpy. Okay, that's the transferring of milk and that's when you're having a big letdown. So taking your baby off when that's happening with that big letdown because that tends to be when they choke and splutter and come off anyway and fuss, but that can give them their, you know, the, the poor reaction that we were talking about in terms of the unsettled behaviour and that sort of thing. So just pulling them off, having a muslin, catching your milk, and then when that letdown passes, just popping them back on for a more settled feed. So that's just another tip in terms of oversupply for your baby. And in terms of you, cold compresses just to soothe. If it's really inflamed and aggressive, take some ibuprofen or some anti-inflammatories and just gentle massage. So we know now that we don't do aggressive massage, we just do gentle massage. And what about if you do find that you're getting recurring mastitis? And can you tell us a little bit about what mastitis is? Yeah. So mastitis is when you have inflammation of the milk ducts in the breast. And it's just to reassure mums, it's not an infection of your milk. So your milk is absolutely fine and it's okay to breastfeed your baby because I think a lot of mums think, Mm. oh my gosh, there's an infection. I can't feed it to my baby. So just to reassure mums that they can. And with mastitis, so it is fascinating. So they've changed, you know, what they thought was the cause of mastitis from milk stasis and congestion of the milk ducts or infection from damaged nipples to oversupply and dysbiosis, which is uneven sort of good and bad bacteria Mm. of the breast, okay? And that causes narrowing of the milk ducts and inflammation. So what they used to recommend versus what they recommend now are quite different. So for mastitis, if you feel like you're getting mastitis, some of the symptoms are very red, very sore, localised pain in your breast. You may see your breast sort of come up looking shiny, red, hot. You may feel a bit unwell, feverish, just generally like you're getting 
the getting flu. a cold or the flu. Yeah. And it comes on suddenly. Yeah, 100%. You can wake up from a nap and go, oh, yeah. hang on, something's not right. Mm. So you may have noticed that you had engorgement or blocked ducts prior to that that were kind of hard and gristly in your breasts and that was causing a bit of discomfort, but it's progressed a little bit to mastitis. So in that situation, you would take anti-inflammatories to reduce that, put cold compressors on your breasts. So they used to say use heat, but we know that makes it worse now. Yeah. If required, gentle, gentle massage, but nothing aggressive. Yeah. Like So we did always say get I the know. vibrator, get the yeah. vibration, vibrating toothbrush out and but just now, get in no. there. No, so very gentle. And avoid where you can, avoid nipple shields and breast pumps. So, again, back in the day we used to say, oh, get on that pump, girl, make yeah. yourself comfortable. <laughs> but we know that that just makes more and oversupplied being an actual cause for mastitis now. If you can avoid that, it's best to do so. So just hand expressing off to comfort when necessary. And if you don't have that overwhelming day three, day four, day five milk coming in sensation, is that a sign that you have undersupply or do some people just not get that sensation? People get it to varying degrees. You should definitely feel if your milk is coming in that you go from having a soft, squishy breast to a much firmer breast. So you, you should feel fullness in your breast. It may not be to the point of like rocks and really overwhelming, but you should definitely feel changes to your breast. Yeah. And what are some things nowadays that are encouraged if you do have a low supply? Or is that an entire conversation in <laughs> itself? Oh, that's a big conversation. But I guess I could, you know, the one one thing that one massive tip if you have, if you're finding that, you know, your baby's got low weight gain, they're acting hungry, their output as in their wheeze and their poos are not optimal. You're being told by your care providers that you might need to top up or look at, you know, giving some formula or whatever. Then your biggest tip is to get on a pump and stimulate to breastfeed on demand and for as long as the baby requires and then some with the pump. So just we know that stimulation is going to bring in milk. So once your baby then, you know, does breastfeed, your supply will be there. So that's one big tip. And so if you do have undersupply and you're pumping, you pump after a feed rather than before because yeah. obviously you don't want to take away more milk. Correct. Yeah. That, that sounds like really hard work. Yeah, it is really hard yeah. work. It is really hard work, Soph. And it's good to point out because it's a real mind fact for mums. They're already so a little bit sore and sorry no matter what type of birth they've had. They're emotional. They're trying to get to know a newborn and they're trying to learn a million new skills. So it's it's mm. really overwhelming to add more to that list. Get support. So go and see an IBCLC lactation consultant, someone who's really qualified to support you in it because it's a process and it changes every feed basically until you know what's happening and you're checking your baby's weight gain and you're checking your quotas and you're checking how much milk you're getting and it's a lot. So have someone you trust and someone to support you doing it. And maybe if you have a partner that can be a great thing that you kind of get them, obviously you're the one who's going to have to pump, they can't necessarily pump for you, but maybe the cleaning, the sterilising, the giving of that top-up bottle can be something that you handle off and can give them some bonding and connection while you you yeah. take a couple of things off your list. Yeah. No, absolutely. Get the partners get to get in there and help with that. Very important. And I think you kind of touched it already, but if we are exclusively breastfeeding, how on earth do we know if our baby's getting enough? 
Sometimes you just wish your boob was see-through. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that actually would have been smarter, wouldn't it? <laughs> Can we just go yeah. back a yeah. bit in time and make some changes? See-through titties. Yeah. <laughs> You're so clever. Yes. So I guess the answer to that is we don't until we do. So we are we assume that Everyone has colostrum and everyone can breastfeed their baby if they wish to breastfeed their baby. It's not until we get signs or evidence to show that that baby may not be getting the quantity that we expect or need the baby to get. So, you know, is the baby starting to become really sleepy and not wanting to wake for feeds? Is the output low? Is it not having good wee and poo output? Is it not gaining uh, well, losing the right amount of weight on day three, sort of within a 10%? on a (laughs) spectrum-ish weight loss or are they extra unsettled? So are they screaming, dry, acting hungry, all of that sort of stuff? And that's where we might reassess things, you know. But, yeah, we assume the normal until we're shown the abnormal essentially when it comes to that. Should we introduce a bottle early to make sure they can take one? If you're going forward wanting your partner to share that role and give a bottle and, you know, allow some freedom for yourself, The recommendation is generally to wait sort of three to four week mark. So wait until your milk supply is established because if we start to introduce, from a lactation point of view this is, if we start to introduce different teats, it may cause confusion for babies and therefore they might make preference over the bottle Mm. over to the breast and also it might just start to affect supply. So if they're not feeding at the breast on demand, then we might start to notice our supply diminishing a little bit. Therefore, they just wait until it's well established and you've got a good supply and then, yeah, absolutely, get your bottle out. Beautiful. And what's the go with the controversy around burping? Why do some people (laughs) tell you you must burp and some people tell you you don't need to burp? Or do you not even want to enter this minefield? No, I'm happy to enter it. I personally instinctively have always said and noticed anecdotally that some babies are burpers and some babies aren't burpers. But I think commonsensically, is that even a word? That's fine. It's a bit Dr. Susie, but that's okay. (laughs) We'll keep going. (laughs) It's quirky. But I think ultimately giving babies opportunities to burp is the way I always recommend doing it. So we're not going to eat a huge meal and go lie ourselves down, or we might, but we shouldn't. (laughs) You know, it's not good for our digestion. It's probably not good for theirs. So whether or not it's just moving from a breastfeed or a bottle feed, just tummy to tummy, just put them a little bit upright, lie back, rub their little back, see if any burps come up. It doesn't have to be an official process, particularly at night. One thing I do say is do not spend half an hour sitting your baby forward on your lap, leaning them over, patting their back, trying to get a burp up. That's just going to stimulate everybody. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Everybody's just going to be awake and alert and way more unsettled. And can you tell us how soft or how hard you need to actually do a burp? Because I've seen people be pretty bloody firm on little babies' backs. What is actually like what's needed? Just a little rub, just an upright and a little rub. You can do a little tap, but it it certainly doesn't have to be aggressive. Mind you, babies don't mind a good firm pat on the bum, but I don't think they need a slap to the back really. So, yeah, just a little little rub up and down. They'll bring it up if it's there, yeah, Yeah, with with burping. I was going to say I've had two happy chuckers. Poppy and Pearl, both of them. It's really inconvenient in terms of laundry, like you needed more work in that domain. But I will say that it 
has led anecdotally to two very, I think, settled bubs because they're not difficult to burp. They kind of let all the yeah. air up and wind up themselves. But I know that it can be quite confronting. Like I posted on my stories funny pictures of Nick covered in pearl spew or me and all these people are like, shouldn't you be doing something about that? How do we know if it's fine, normal spit up versus gastro or, the, you know, there's something wrong with your bub? Generally, your nature of your baby. So you just described a beautifully happy, contented baby who's, Mm. you know, feeding well at the breast and just bringing it up at the end. Some babies are just better at it. Some babies are predispositioned to that. It's not a problem if they're happy. And that goes in general (laughs) to mothering and parenting. It's not a problem if it's not a problem. Mm. I think that's a really good take home for all mums on everything. So a lot of people will say to you, this is a problem or that's a problem. If it's not a problem Mm. to you or your baby, it's not a problem. Yeah. So I think that's a, with vomiting, you'll find some babies don't vomit at all or posset or bring anything up and other babies projectile. It's just a reflex. And for the mother and or for the parents that are looking at the spit up, it looks more than mm. what is actually come out, correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. And it's so disheartening when you've spent an entire evening cluster feeding. And sometimes I just knew when it was coming, when she would do this, especially with Pearl, she would just do this hour upon hour cluster feed. And I was like, we're both going to wear this. You've had too much. Yeah. And she would just go and go and then she would do it all over us, like shower, change, hungry again and I'd just be like girl if you just (laughs) calmed down it might just be too a little bit with some babies eyes are bigger than their tummy type thing her eyes are very big (laughs) (laughs) both those babies had dummies is that correct no, Poppy has her thumb. Oh, Poppy, your Poppy had but it, thumb, I but always found it funny. I had the worst hyperemesis with both of them and it's like I just passed the baton over. Like I vomited until yeah. they were born, passed the baton over, and then they vomit from there. It's their turn. But obviously they've both grown out of it now. But Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think just because with sucky babies, they show you signs that they're hungry mm. because they want to continue sucking after a feed. So sometimes that can be misinterpreted or interpreted as I'm still hungry, but actually they might be quite full and they may get on the breast and just suckle for a bit of comfort yeah. or they may, if they're a bit of a piggy, take more than they need. Yeah. And then it that just actually comes makes up. so much sense yeah. because yeah, Poppy's still a thumb sucker and she's five now and Pearl loves the dummy. So yeah. that actually makes sense. Yeah. Ooh. And that's okay because it's like, you know, I always say you can't overfeed a breastfed baby either. They will just chuck it up mm. and they've done that. So they're really smart. You've got smart babies. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're like their mother. <laughs> <laughs> We're on to poos. Yes. What's the general poo journey of a baby at the start of their life and when should we be concerned? Mm, the poo journey. So the first poo that we have in the first 24 hours is meconium. And a lot of people hear about this because it's like sticky black tar. It's made up of all the waste factors, amniotic fluid, hair, cells, oh, Sounds grotesque. all types of goodies that have been inhaled by our babies in utero. So that comes out in the first 24 hours and it's- Not uh, our pubes, right? <laughs> yeah, what not hair? Our, not our hair. <laughs> their their hair. On the way out. Yeah, on their body. Yeah, yeah, it falls off. It's amazing, oh. isn't it? It's crazy. So they poo that out in the first 24 hours. I always say with that poo, be prepared, have your wipes ready, catch it early because it sticks- 
like tar to their bums and it's quite hard to get off if you leave it for a couple of hours and you haven't noticed it. So that's day one. Day two, it's generally still quite sticky and meconium-like but with a bit more of a brownie green tinge. And just let me preface this by saying that we're talking about, you know, babies who we know are getting good amounts of milk and are fed just well. General. And so we're general. just talking general here. Yeah. yeah. And day three, they're going to have a softer poo and it's going to be a bit more greeny brown. By day four, it'll look mustardy like seed. And by day five, it'll be like soft, mushy mustard. Okay. That's talking a breastfed baby. A formula fed baby is going to look a little bit more like peanut butter in consistency and a, it could be anywhere from brownie to yellowish to greenish, okay? And on day one, a baby typically does one poo, typically does two on day two, three on day three, four on day oh, wow. four, and on day five, they will do anywhere between three and five poos. Wow. But a exclusively breastfed baby can go five to ten days without. Yeah. yeah, so people say this. That freaks me out. Yeah. So we're sure on that? That's fine. Yeah, it, look, <laughs> it is, but generally this is not in your, in your first few weeks. Right. Okay, so after six weeks I'd say that. And yeah. where does it go? Like it all just builds up and then when they poo, they poo five to ten days worth of poo all at once. Yeah. Like but no just, nappy, no, how many, no matter how good a nappy is, is going to be able to hold that, right? <laughs> well, it does, but it gets a bit more compact and it's also so well absorbed. So, so, so much of it goes back in, you know what I mean? Like that just so it goes to show what breast milk does. So bottle-fed babes, what is the consistency and how regular should they be going to? Yeah, so they can go three to five days without a poo and that is normal as well and they'll do, do anywhere from one to three a day as well and it should be, like it'll continue to be kind of like peanut butter consistency and when, a brownie. When we're feeding our babes in the newborn stage in the first few weeks and they're arching their back and they're kicking their legs and is that an indication? that there's gas there and we should be doing something like cycling their little legs or patting them on the back. <laughs> Slapping them on the back. Yeah, little crack. <laughs> so this is, I guess, what is typically termed windy, colicky sort of behaviour by parents. Again, very controversial topic. <laughs> um, I think in summary, it's babies have an immature gut and it's a normal physiological response for them to be for their bodies to start to learn to process mm. food and adjust to that. Uh, they are less affected than what we think they are by looking at them. It looks a lot worse. But in terms of what to do about that, if, if a baby's generally well, generally coping, they're just noisy, it's their little alert sleep and they're making noises and being, you know, disruptive to you, again, just pick them up, give them an opportunity to bring up wind if it's there for 10 or 15 minutes and give them lots of tummy time on you over your lap and massage their little bellies. Baths are great in terms of letting them have a bit of exercise and kicking their legs mm. and that can often get your bowel going and get the wind out as well. So if you're just holding them by the top of their heads under their heads and letting their legs kick around in there, that's a really beautiful way to naturally just get your digestion happening. When to be concerned about baby's poos is if there is white, chalky, grey poos in there. Um, blood or mucus. So if you're unsure if there's mucus in there, fold your nappy together, open it up or just, you know, mush it around and it'll be like egg white. 
if there's mucus in there. And if that's the case, then definitely you need to contact a healthcare provider or go to your GP about that. But otherwise, most things are normal with poos. I think one of the biggest worries, we get a lot of callbacks with newborns when parents go home and they say, oh, my baby's got diarrhea. Diarrhea is actually really normal. It's just they're just wet, loose stools for newborn babies. So mm. that is really normal just to reassure mums. Going from baby's nappies to mummy's nappies, mm. how much bleeding is to be expected and when should we be concerned about bleeding? So with blood loss, a caesarean versus vaginal birth, uh, there's going to generally be less blood loss with a caesarean. But that's not always the case either. If you are changing a pad sort of every time you do a wee, that's fairly normal. So it should be like a heavy period in your first 24 hours. If you're finding you have to change your pads every hour or two and they're soaked, that's probably too much. Mm -hmm. Or if you're losing large clots. But let's talk about clots because I found there was a lot of anxiety around the size and what's coming out. Can you explain to us what's actually normal when you've just given birth and you do see a few of those? I mean, yeah. I think for the first week I had a fair few that would just randomly come out. What's normal and what's probably something that we should look at? Yeah. So anything under kind of a golf ball size is fairly normal loss to have. And you might find that it's after you've done a breastfeed or when you've just gotten up for the first time after lying down for a few hours and, you know, it's just built up in the vaginal cavity and then it comes out when you stand up, okay, or when you sneeze or cough or, you know, anything like that. So those type of clots, they're better out than in. Mm -hmm. It's your body just getting them out themselves, expelling them. And in the first 24 hours, that's quite normal. So after that, you should find that your lochia or your blood loss is getting more pink, brown and more watery in nature. So then you'll have a few more days of that. Your bleeding should stop generally between four and six weeks. Some mums go a bit longer, some mums go a bit less. And is it right that you should be concerned if it's like really eased up and then all of a sudden is back heavier again? Correct. Yeah. So if you find that your blood loss had settled right down and suddenly starts up again, or if it gets bright red in nature again after it had changed to a more watery consistency. So, or if there's extra pelvic pain associated with it, if there's a, a smell or an mm. odor associated with it, there are the sort of red flags. While we're talking about this, can we just talk about afterbirth pain? I was about to say the same thing because, because they, every time oh. your baby, well, you feed your baby, or I fed my baby in hospital after giving birth, there's this excruciating, and I say that this is worse than childbirth. Yeah. It is just the most uncomfortable feeling, and it is, I'll let you explain what these afterbirth pains are, but every time I would feed, I'd have these pains, and then I'd have a gush of period just come straight I out. had never heard of these before I had Poppy, and so my shock when these started, so I you was. you had them with Poppy? Yeah. Ah. yeah I, I had, had them quite bad each time and they got worse each time but I do feel like with Pearl I was more I was expecting it to be so excruciating that I feel like I was more on top of taking pain relief and that kind of thing but my goodness when I had it with Poppy it was so I would say that was the most yeah. unexpected thing of my entire newborn journey no one with talks her. about them yeah yeah it's interesting that you got them with the first because and I won't say never because everyone's different like we've established, but generally you, you won't get them with your first, but with subsequent babies they get more and more intense. So afterbirth pains are where your uterus is contracting back to your 
pre-pregnancy sort of uterus and it's hard work for your body to do that but it's even harder work after you've had multiple babies so it's it uh presents as more pain for a woman definitely it was horrendous yeah and some women did like require morphine for it it's it, it can be really intense for some women and the breastfeeding obviously releases oxytocin which helps contract the uterus that's our drug for labor so it makes it worse but it's it's perfectly healthy and normal and it's a good thing it just can be so uncomfortable and just yeah. to note like so everyone knows like you're saying with the morphine it can be managed with I think I had Voltar and and Ibo Ibo Profen fucking Nurofen <laughs> But you've got to get, you've got to stay on top of it because I would be like, oh yeah, I'll take something when the time comes around. And then they feed when you weren't expecting them to feed and you think, oh gosh. And I used a heat pack actually with Pearl, which really helped as well. I think, yes. That was one of my tips is just to stay on top of your pain relief. So three to fourth hourly, either alternate Panadol uh, and an anti-inflammatory. Paracetamol. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Jane. (laughs) And a heat pack. Uh, and heat packs are so underestimated for pregnancy, for breastfeeding, for afterbirth pains. Have a heat pack. I just think they're so underrated. You, you use them Even for your back pain. pain. Don't you reckon? Also yeah. digging your nails into your partner's hand <laughs> while you get that latch. Oh, that really helps yeah, as well. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that. <laughs> now let's move on to baths. How long should we wait to bathe our bubs and what's the benefit of waiting a little bit? Yeah. So the World Health Organization recommends waiting until your baby's 12 to 24 hours old. I personally think longer. I think 24 to 48 hours, sometimes day three, unless your baby is just covered in muck and you, it's not okay with you. I think And that's, your newborn photos are just not <laughs> up to scratch. <laughs> yeah. But I, in saying that, so often I'll just wrap a baby in a blanket and we just get a bit of warm water and just pop it under the tap if that's bothering parents and just clean their hair because <laughs> often that's all they need and they're keeping all the goodness on their skin. So in terms of why we wait, babies are born with that beautiful vernix on their skin which is a beautiful luscious moisturizer for them it's also protects against microbes and temperature control so it's really important to kind of keep that on for a certain amount of time babies are also adjusting from being in an aqueous environment to a dry aerobic environment Mm. so they're more vulnerable to external factors so just keeping that protective layer on for a bit longer is a good thing and then obviously they can't thermoregulate either so they can't regulate their own temperature that means so it's quite hard for them once they they do get wet you need to just be really prepared with baths just have everything out I heard something amazing about Vernix I think it might have even been on TikTok the other day so we might actually do a fact check (laughs) but When they're in utero, the vernix is really thick and that's because they're in obviously liquid for so long and it stops them from becoming a complete prune and all their skin shedding off. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And that's why if you go overdue sometimes there'll be less vernix and their skin is really dry because they don't have the protection. TikTok, it came through. Who needs needs to become a doctor? Who needs a podcast? I mean, mean, no, no, no. (laughs) Who needs a midwife here? Yeah. (laughs) She was a midwife, I will say. The person saying that was a midwife. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's so amazing. So it just goes to show how important it is for the skin 
protective barrier. You know, it's the largest organ in the body. It absorbs so much. So just keeping that protected for as long as possible. In I really those early need days. to moisturize my skin. <laughs> I do my face and that's about it. I like the answer to this, I think. How often do they realistically need a bath? Yeah, not very often. Yes. <laughs> Poor Pearl. Not very often. Don't eat one though. You're fine. You don't. They don't sweat. We wipe their bums with wipes. Yeah. They're actually, I mean, unless a lot, like I I mentioned earlier, a lot of parents like to implement that as part of a little routine or a schedule that they like to do. And and it gives partners something to do with their baby to bond. So yeah, I think not very often. I think once or twice a week is fine. Any more than that is probably a little bit harsh on the skin. Sometimes I joked that Pearl vomited on herself just to force us to bathe her. (laughs) She's like, you got no choice now, you lazy bitch. <laughs> Should we use any products? You can if you want to, but they just need to be, you know, really safe, simple products. I don't think you need to at all. Sometimes just putting a couple of drops of oil, like olive oil or coconut oil around the house oils can just be really nice and moisturative for the skin, but you don't, you don't have to. You can if you want to. And how do you know if the bath is the right temperature? So I think a, a ba- baby's bath temp should be ideally between 36.5 and 38 degrees. Obviously, you don't know that just from touching it. So, so many parents these days have the little rubber duckies Mm. or just those pop-in thermometers that you can check that. And I think they're not a bad idea in the first, if if that's something that's going to make you a little bit concerned, they're a good idea. You eventually get used to just feeling the temp and knowing the right temp and your baby obviously gets a little bit older and less vulnerable to the temperature as well. So it all works out over time. But yeah, I think in those first few days, it it should be between 36.5 and 38. So somewhere between then, use your temperature control. Speaking of temperature, and this is a big one that I think causes a lot of anxiety, how do we know if our baby is dressed correctly for the temperature? Mm. And I guess we're speaking to so many people in different climates here so it's a really hard one I know that in general you're meant to just put a layer more than what you are wearing on your baby in cold climates dress your baby in layers so that you can Mm. keep you know you're going indoors you're going outdoors so always have layers on your baby just feel your baby but feel them on their tummy or the back of their neck and that's going to be your best indicator they're not going to be overdressed if they're just doing if they're a layer yeah. above you, you know, and you feel comfortable. So if you're feeling comfortable and they're one layer more than you, then that that's going to be the right. That only goes for people who dress normally, though, because my husband could wear shorts all year round. So if it was left up to him, <laughs> our children would literally be so cold. <laughs> but I I run hot, so yeah. I'm always boiling, and I had to ask Harry every time, mm. "What should I dress mm. the kids in?" Because I would always say nothing and he would go no 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 we have it's actually quite <laughs> cold today winter, yeah. yeah but I and because I'm moving all the time I'm always feeling quite hot whereas yeah. they're just sitting there and sleeping and snoozing yeah they are so that they are going to get colder and but then you got blankets right on top of the clothing yeah correct well when they're sleeping you do you know baby's clothes are so tiny if you're going out and about and you're unsure take a pair of socks take some mittens if you want to wear mittens if it's really cold and just take your layers and base it on where you're at at the time and and one extra layer nighttime generally put one suit a long suit and a singlet in winter and then also at nighttime you've 
you know, use your togs now. I saw a hack on Instagram and then realized I was doing the hack. So I want to share the hack. If you're going somewhere cold on holidays or something and for that temperature, it's recommended to have like a 3.5 tog, but you don't want to buy new sleep suits just for that you layer them up and you just combine the tog. I think that's how it works. Can we just and then explain, you don't have to buy new suits. Explain what a tog is for people that have no idea what that is. Yeah, so a tog system is for your sleep suits. It's measuring at what temperature a room is and then what amount of layer or what tog layer that is going like to be the required, thickness. the thickness and the, the heat of that tog for the temperature of the room. And I know this Red Nose Foundation and SIDS recommendations, they don't actually recommend a room temperature for your baby. It's just just the clothing. Right. So and they recommend the tog. So if you're somewhere well, cold, so. instead of using a heater, you use the layers on the baby. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And what about their head? Because they can't sleep in a beanie or anything. Often Pearl's body will be so toasty and then her little head is so cold mm, and, and it's it not knows. even that cold where we are. Yeah, yeah. Well, the extremities, so if the body core temperature is okay, then they're going to be a good temperature ultimately. Right. And we know that that was just another note that we know that not to cover babies' heads when they're sleeping as part of the SIDS recommendations because that's how they expel heat through their face and through their head. Mm. So if they were to get too hot in the night, that's how they would cool themselves down. And if they're covered in hats and beanies then they can't do that so that's just another note to and cold hands is that an issue because they always seem to have cold hands yeah no worry less about the extremities and feel their core temp so if you're worried that they're too hot do their tummy or the back of their neck yeah to feel their temp and obviously if you're really concerned use a thermometer now, a little bit of change of pace. We're moving on to setting boundaries. So mm. this is, is a really big one when people come home from hospital or when they're still in hospital and they've had their bub. So advice on getting family to give you some space. Everyone has very different complicated relationships with family and extended family. So I've I guess there's a few things, different recommendations, but the first one is have those conversations early. I think don't wait till you've had your baby and you're feeling overwhelmed because it's never going to go down very well. Just sort of whether it be if you struggle with confrontation and you feel like those conversations might be hard, maybe sit down with your partner and design a text message that you can send out and just say, look, you know, however you see that period for you going, express that in a text message. Look, we've decided we don't want any visitors in Mm. the hospital. We can't wait for you to meet them, but can we just organise this time, this date at home when, when we get back? I also think most people respond really well to honesty. So if you just say, if you find yourself in a situation where, you, where you're feeling overwhelmed with it, just be honest. Say, I've got a new baby, I'm getting so much advice and there's so many people around and I just need a bit of space to figure it out. I think everyone's going to respect that at some point. So, yeah, I think honesty and I think just planning those conversations and having them early and deciding how to get that information out to everybody. What about the advice or unsolicited advice when they have opinions on how things should be done? Again, you can be honest. I think having just saying thank you, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> just a thank compliment you. sandwich. Sometimes just a thank you and a, like leaving it alone is enough too because having those conversations can be more stressful. Sometimes getting your partner to have those conversations yeah. for you, particularly if it's their side, <laughs> mm. which it can be, just sort of saying, look, so if Jade's feeling overwhelmed, can we just sort of back off a little bit with all the advice and just also offer it saying, look, 
I'm good with advice because I've got so many people supporting me, but I'd love this to happen. I'd love a load of washing mm, done Give today. them a different give task. Give them a different yeah. task. So just don't sort of, yeah, don't give them nothing. Don't, mm. say, don't shut them down and give them nothing. Mm. Say, okay, but you know what? There's heaps of things that you can do for me that I'd really that I'd really love. Because so. they can get a little bit like, oh, I can't do anything right. And it's mm. like so when you're – and I think sometimes a compliment sandwich yeah. works in the way you said thank you wow, you know like so much about this topic. We just kind of want to figure it out for ourselves right now. But if we can't work it out, we're going to come back to you 100%. to get your advice. But I love that about giving them another task because it doesn't leave them feeling like everything I try to do, I yeah. seem to be doing something wrong. Yeah. And that, and it's only ever coming from that place. Like when people are giving you advice, they're going, I need to help. It's my daughter-in-law. It's yeah. my daughter. And I need to sort of offer some advice so I can feel helpful. So if you just translate that into a practical task, they'll be like, oh, they won't even notice that mm. you've ignored their advice. (laughs) (laughs) What's your thoughts on having visitors in hospital? I think whatever you're comfortable with is the right thing for you. You get some people who are so social who love having the room packed full of people. But the one bit of advice that I would say is make it a time of the day so you do get a chance to especially if it's a, if you're a first time mum and you're trying to work out your baby and your feeding habits and all that sort of stuff. Make sure you sort of say, look, I'd love everyone to come in the morning and you can have this time slot, you can have this time slot, and then it's rest and time. And they're like so. half an hour max. <laughs> half the time slots are half yeah. an hour max. Yeah, because I've yeah. got and, – and have that as an – I've got someone else coming at this time or whatever because so often you do, oh, you know, we'll go into a room and – babies might require feeding and there's visitors and and you feel torn because you want to entertain and you're excited and you want to show off your new baby and it's all beautiful but you there are you know certain things that need to be done and and you're also feeling you know overwhelmed yourself so I think whatever you feel comfortable with ultimately but Mm. set set boundaries around it and give yourself that opportunity to have a rest at some point. Is other people kissing your bub a big no-no and if so how do we approach this? I think it's a really personal thing. If they're immediate family and it's a grandmother or a mother-in-law and you're more than happy for them to kiss your baby, it's not going to be a problem. Obviously, strangers, I think <laughs> I think yeah. the lady they in the supermarket, yeah. I think, yeah. They it's come at you. And they kiss their hands because they think, oh, the face isn't appropriate for the hand. I'm like, just don't yeah. come near my child. Or pat I, the head even. They, mm. I think that's too much mm. when just you don't, don't touch know them. them. Like we've been so are people still doing that? Yeah. Like her. post-COVID, people all, yeah. Oh, of the older generation. I think that's where the carrier is great because it's really weird for someone to get that close to another adult they don't know in the street. (laughs) Whereas in the pram, it's almost like, and I know that sometimes you've got to take your baby out in the pram, but it's almost like this open space for people to touch. Yeah. Look, in summary, whatever you're comfortable and personal. To finish us off, just a couple of health questions. What are some general red flags in terms of health for mum and bub that we should look out for? So starting with mum, I think we covered a few of them in terms of immediate postpartum physical things. So if you get home and your wound, whether it be in your your perineum, your vagina or your cesarean wound, uh, if it's looking inflamed, it's extra sore, it's oozing blood or anything, if it's smelly or odorous, if you've got extra pain anywhere, so if pain has suddenly increased, if blood loss has suddenly increased and turned bright red again, they're all sort of red flags. Feeding-wise, 
again, mastitis, signs of mastitis and engorgement. If you feel like you're coming down with anything like that, contact your GP, your midwife, your obstetrician, whoever, whatever care provider you had, and just get that assessed because it can get bad quickly, like we said. In terms of emotionally and psychologically red flags, if you find that you are not enjoying your baby, not able to connect with your baby, if there's a lot of fear, social anxiety, that sort of thing, and and you feel like it's not getting better. You know, there's baby blues, there's day three and four, but if it's extending and it's starting to affect your day-to-day, then maybe reach out as well. Moving on to baby, red flags, all the things we talked about in terms of just general, it, it's always a whole picture with a baby. It's never one thing. So always look at their output. Are they weeing and pooing? Their general nature. Are they nice and settled? Are they a good colour? Are they nice and pink and juicy? They're not yellow or grey or pale. Their chest, are they breathing well? They don't have chest recession. Are they mucousy and blocked up in the nose? Do they have a temperature? And do they look like they're gaining weight or are they gaining weight if you're checking that with someone? So, and are they feeding well, waking for feeds, having nice alert periods at times and are nice and settled and sleepy at times? Just to cover that, it is so normal for babies to be unsettled and cry. (laughs) So that's not, there's not something wrong with your baby because they're crying and they're unsettled. When in doubt, feed them, change them strip yourselves down, have some skin to skin, just connect with your baby again. And Back to um, the three steps that you started when you got home. Yeah, yeah, 100%. When in doubt, do those things because that's going to calm everyone's nervous system. Your oxytocin is going to be released. Everyone's guts are going to relax. There's going to be less wind, less colicky behaviour. Mums are going to be calm and relaxed and then in turn it all just rubs off on each other. So, yeah, when in doubt, do those things. And if you're concerned, contact whoever your care provider is. I think the temperature is a big one too. I think a lot of people don't realize that any temperature under three months needs to be seen by a healthcare provider. It's not like other kids that you can just give them some Panadol and see how you go. Yeah. So anything over 37.5 for a newborn. And when I say that, I'll also say if they're overdressed or they've been skin to skin and just had a breastfeed and their temperature is 37.7, strip them off give them a bit of space, retake their temperature Mm. and see if it's gone down because there's no need to panic at that stage, but obviously keep an eye on it. Mm. Yeah. And just look at the other things that we covered in terms of how is my baby overall. And something that I like to add is if you are a first time mum, please remember that if you do go to a mother's group or you're surrounded by other people you know that have babies, every single baby is different and every single mother is mothering differently. So just know that this is your journey with your child and you're doing the best that you can. Beautiful. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Is there any last little words of advice before we say Um, goodbye? No, I think that was really beautifully said. It was probably something that I would say, Jade. Oh, stop <laughs> you can it. steal it. You can do it. Go, go. Yeah, go. <laughs> no, I think in final, just go back to the basics that we talked about earlier and try to enjoy the process because we can overcomplicate things and it can send us into a, a big fizz. So just keep it simple, enjoy your baby and that's all folks. <laughs> Thank Good. you so, so much, Claire, for joining us today. And that is all. Bye. Thanks, girls. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you.
You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.